In the meantime, for everyone that's the first time here, um, we have uh, we do these science newsrooms uh, to update what's going on in science currently, and then also based on the feedback, we can all decide then together which one of the papers we would like to learn more from the from the scientists, and then we'll invite them. This one actually will be invited uh, June 5th. Uh, it's a really um, nice scientist from Japan. And he, yeah, he was so nice to say yes, because I thought it was so cool. <laughs> I immediately invited him. And uh, yeah, it will be June 5th, Monday at 7 p.m. EST. And um, yeah, feel free to also share uh, with us uh, articles and uh, if you think they are interesting or maybe topics that you would like us to look into more uh, and then we can we can dig deeper in the future so yeah thanks everyone and Victoria do you want to want to go ahead sure yes I'm ready and that's unbelievable that's just fantastic that he'll be here <laughs> That's really great. And then we'll all be kind of prepared. So, all right. So moving into this, just a tiny bit of background is I'm, I imagine that people are aware of, of um, the environment in the soil of fungi that's connecting tree roots and that, so there are some fungi that, that surround the outside of roots and others that grow internally. And, and these, this research is about the ectomycorrhizal fungi that was that was studied. So to begin, certain fungi play a critical role in the ecological sustenance of forest trees, and the ectomycorrhizal fungi are one such example. They're commonly found on pine, oak, and birch, and they form a sheath around the outside of tree roots, and their mycelial body develops into vast underground networks that absorb vital nutrients from the soil and then transfer it to the tree. So it's this fantastic um, communication network that's, that's possible because this fungi is connecting all of the trees. And it's part of the reason why it's so tragic when, when there's clear cutting and then people think that we can just harvest and replant because it isn't the case because this vast communication network is, is destroyed. So, and it takes, ages to, to develop. So scientists have been studying the possibility of electrical signals, um, excuse me, electrical signal transfer between mushrooms and across trees via the mycelial networks. And it's thought that fungi generate electrical signals in response to external stimuli and then use these signals to communicate with each other, coordinating growth and other behaviors. It has been hypothesized that these signals can be used to help transfer nutrients to plants and trees. So it's it's amazing. Not only are they communicating, but they're you know they're feeding each other. So scientific evidence remains sparse, and many studies have been limited to the laboratory, failing to recreate what happens in the wild. However, now a group of researchers has gone to the forest floor to examine the small tan-colored ecto ectomycorrhizal mushrooms that are known as Lasaria bicolor. And they've attached electrodes to six mushrooms in a cluster and have discovered that the electrical signals increased after rainfall. 
I think it's kind of adorable just to imagine this happening and the, the mushrooms are so innocent um, and they're being monitored. So in the beginning, the mushrooms exhibited less electrical potential and we boiled this down to the lack of precipitation, says Yu Fukasawa from Tohoku University, who led the project along with Takayuki Takahi and Daisuke Akai from the National Institute of Technology in Nagaoka College and also Masayuki Ushio from the Hakubi Center, Kyoto University, presently at Hong Kong University of Science and Technology. Um, he goes on to say, however, the electrical potential began to fluctuate after raining, sometimes going over 100 um, megavolts. The researcher correlated this fluctuation with precipitation and temperature, and causality analysis revealed that the post-rain electrical potential showed signal transport among mushrooms. It's great. This transport was particularly strong between spatially close mushrooms and also demonstrated directionality, which I think is, is again, just incredible that it's demonstrating directionality. So it's as if they have some choice in, in how they communicate. Um, although I, I recognize that I'm anthropomorphizing this <laughs> horribly, but I can't help. Um, our research, our results confirm the need for further studies on fungal electrical potentials under a true ecological context as Fukasawa. So this is, um, yeah, this is what they will, he will come and present in the future and, um, and just really represents just another layer of why the complexity of the forest floor is, is so important to research and understand. And, um, you know, as, as we strive to preserve the forests and, and be the best stewards of the planet that we can be. Yep. Oh, go ahead, Joyce. Yeah, that's very interesting. I, I just happened to come across an article the other day that was talking about a problem with getting the classification of all the fungi. I, I can't remember. There were some technical issues, I guess, about how they were grown and the requirements about how you could name them, and it was causing a big problem. And so anyway, I something like the one of the the upshots of the article was that over 90% of fungi are unknown basically and anyway so i was just going to put a reference in for that and i i came across an article that was you know by the bbc about fascinating facts about fungi and they mentioned that as one of them was the the unknown uh large majority of them unknown which really makes you wonder about them Anyway, it does, and yeah, it also, it's, it's um, analogous to what we don't know about the ocean, you know, because the ocean is something that we can't see unless we take the time to, to explore, and it's, I think the same can be said for the soil and what's occurring underneath the soil, that if people don't see it, they, they um, you know, it doesn't exist, and so I think that's responsible for this vast amount of um, you know, and lack of information about the fungi that's that's existing. It's a great a great point, Joyce. And Namanu, your comment: mushrooms are always special. They are, and we don't even know all the reasons why. 
Yeah, thank you so much for sharing this. I thought this was really, um, really interesting. And um, I agree. We really have to learn more about this because mushrooms and all these, all these different um, living things in the soil are so important uh, for um, for knowing how the the environment will cope with the climate changes all the changes that are going on and um, I think the more we can learn um, in all these different ways in a very open way and not having this mindset of things that are not possible um, that kind of limit us of what we uh, research um, is really interesting and wonderful and um, so yeah I'm really happy that these authors did this and I don't know if people know um, Japan has a huge tradition in neuroscience and um, like uh, animal different types of animal like how information is being transferred and i i really i'm not surprised that this research is coming from japan because um the reason why that their research wasn't so famous around the world and many many times ignored was because they just didn't publish in english and the rest of the world didn't really realize um, the amount of knowledge they already had in this information transfer of different organisms. So um, it's really wonderful that this is kind of improving, I guess also with technology and um, translation and opening up the world. So yeah, it's, it's, it's really wonderful to see that yeah, the research gets uh, acknowledged around the world. Okay, do we want to go on to the next one? Do you want to share uh, the other ones you had first, Victoria? And then and then I'll share um, some of my... Sure, I can do that. Would you, uh, would you like, can you pin the next one, please? Is that okay? Yeah. Okay, great. And um, is it the one about ant mounds? Yeah, that was really interesting. Okay. Okay, fantastic. Yes, I, I yeah. was drawn to this um, for similar reason. I think these are perhaps misunderstood forms of life. So ants, um, for me personally, ants were some of my earliest playmates. I was an only child for quite some time and, and ants are a kind of wildlife that's always available for, you know, for exploring and examining and plentiful depending on where you live or where you can look. So this is a great uh, article titled, Ant Mounds Are More Important for Biodiversity Than Previously Thought. And goes on to explain that often people consider ants to be a nuisance and um, you know, take measures to get rid of ant colonies if they're in the garden or, or in the home. And there are, are really you know, if you have a little bit of understanding about the life cycle of ants and the ants in your particular area also, you can learn to manage them really without poisons and things. But um, 
Anyway, let's go on to this article. Um, so, with colleagues from the Department of Ecoscience at Aarhus University, Rika Reisner Hansen has studied ant mounds on Danish heathlands to discover their importance for other insects and for plants. So they explain that the ants drag dead animals back to the ant mound, which adds carbon and other important nutrients to the surrounding soil. The ant mound warms up the surrounding ground, and in springtime, adders, lizards, and beetles like to rest near the ant mound for warmth. The heat and nutrients create unique conditions that allow certain plant species that don't otherwise thrive on heathland to survive on the ant mound. So it's kind of like a little hotel. Equipped with a spade, Rika Reisner Hansen went to the heath to study the role of ant mounds in the, in the heathland wildlife. And she looked at two different types of mounds, those belonging to the narrow-headed ant, which look almost identical to mounds that are seen in Danish forests, which by the way can be huge. I've seen them and it's um, it could be in somewhat of a dry area and maybe mm, they're about, I'm thinking like as high as um, like maybe three feet tall. So instead of pine needles, narrow-headed ants use leaves from heather and grass and mounds belonging to the yellow meadow ant this is a small ant that builds its nest from mineral soil on heathlands. When she came across a mound, she took out her spade and dug a hole next to the ant mound. And in this way, she could study how the ant mound affected the soil, the roots, and the wildlife both above and below the mound. She measured the temperature on the top of the mound, and she also examined the soil and as well underneath it to determine the soil nutrients. She explains, it appears that the top part of the ant mound acts like a kind of miniature Costa del Sol for insects and reptiles. The animals exploit the excess heat from the ants for warmth in early spring and on chilly mornings. And she continues, the same applies to plants. If a plant grows on an ant mound, it will blossom or come into leaf faster than the same species growing in the surrounding heathland soil. And this is a huge benefit for insects that feed on pollen and nectar because the ant mounds introduce an extra flowering season so that they have their own microclimate as well. Here's a story about a butterfly that, that lives in this area that's, that's important to this, the, um, the ant mound. The Alcon Blue is a butterfly that lives only on the heathland where ants live. The caterpillar of the Alcon Blue has developed a method by which it tricks the ants into thinking that it is their queen. The Alcon Blue lays its eggs on the rare marsh gentian plant, and the caterpillar feeds on the marsh gentian seeds during the first three stages of its life. When it has, grows big, when it has grown big enough, it falls to the ground and emits an odor and a sound similar to those of a queen ant larva. I'm, I'd love to know what that sounded like. She continues, when the worker ants discover what they mistakenly believe is a queen larva, they drag it into the ant nest. They feed the caterpillar, and sometimes they even forget their own offspring, and the colony can die. The caterpillar winters in the ant mound, and comes spring, it will spread its beautiful blue wings and leaves the ant mound. Denmark is home to 12 species of gossamer-winged butterfly, and the family of butterflies to which the Alcon Blue belongs. 
11 of these species thrive best in places where the ants also live. So now we can see it's not just an accident. And a handful of these depend on the ants to complete their life cycle. But ant mounds are also important for other species, and protecting them is therefore an important step in mitigating biodiversity crisis. And this article acknowledges the crisis that we are in, in the middle of, um, mentioning that the numbers of animal, plant, and fungi that are under threat of extinction in Denmark alone, with 1,844 species. That's one is too many, but that's a huge number. So they're suggesting that they learn to manage the heathlands, um, and instead of managing them as a homogenous landscape, and we have that problem here with monoculture farming as well, um, they often apply the same management method throughout a heathland to preserve it as open landscape. They allow too many animals to graze on the land and use large machines to cut the vegetation, which destroys the ant mounds. To ensure many different plants and animals on the heath, we need to rewild the landscape or at least return it to the way it was before machinery took over from traditional management systems, she explains. And the article goes on to explain a bit of the history of the management of the heathlands and concludes restating the need for the importance of ant mounds and, and what she's discovered with respect to um, the life cycle, saying that bees need bare solid soil, small warm spots where they can make nests. Other insects need small mounds of earth, water, or deadwood. It's also important to have plants that provide different types of nectar. Some bees can only use the nectar from a single or a few species of flower, and some butterflies only live on certain plants. It's important that we ensure these small habitat variations in our gardens, both in terms of space and across the year, if we want to give diversity back to nature, she concludes. And I'm, I'm sure everyone in here can think of an example of, you know, of a way that habitat destruction can affect a species, for example, um, bluebirds are cavity nesters, and so if people are removing trees, then then bluebird populations suffer. Um, you know, there are just so many, and this is only one, but it's it's showing that the ant mound provides home and provides species and so many other things for just across across a wide range of species. Yeah. yeah so we should. Oh, go leave, ahead. leave Victoria's playmates alone, right? <laughs> she she grew up with. <laughs> yeah, I, I was. Uh, this is also interesting to me because I happen to know someone who I know very well from Clubhouse who lives in our our house, and I, I would never have heard of that place if it <laughs> if it weren't for Clubhouse. Yeah, yes, I have family there. It's a beautiful place. I I um got stung by a lot of mosquitoes there. <laughs> so visit it but prepare. Yeah, I think this is a wonderful work that um that shows the complexity of the interconnected way our ecosystems work and whenever we change something, we can really not predict really well um what type of you know what species we will affect with that and um it's really um it's really wonderful that this work was done 
because the sad thing is that a lot of times nowadays, you know, to, to get funding for work, you kind of have to always claim you're solving directly something, right? You, you solve cancer, you solve this and that. And um, it's way more difficult to get funding for this type of research that just looks for, you know, how things work for the sake of knowing first but then in the end, it will give us really crucial knowledge to know how our world and environment works and uh, what we need to be careful about. Because bugs especially are dying at a way faster pace than, than many other animals um, around the world. And we don't necessarily exactly know why they are all dying so fast. And um, this is just an example of, you know, if we would, for example, kill all the ants, we would have no butterflies <laughs> and we wouldn't have thought of that. And the more we, we can, these type of projects get funded, I think the better we'll understand and can protect our environment. So, yeah, thank you for sharing that. My pleasure. Okay, I think you had another one. Uh, that was really interesting about the infant gut. Mm -hmm. Here okay. it is. Yeah, it. Are you able to pin that one? Thank you. All right. Yeah, this one is wonderful. They're just, again, something that, that there's so much to discover here. Beneficial bacteria in the infant gut uses nitrogen from breast milk to support baby's health. A University of Massachusetts Amherst nutrition scientist who has spent his career studying breast milk has discovered, has demonstrated how beneficial microbes in the gut of infants use nitrogen from human milk to support pediatric nutrition and development. He explains, the molecules in breast milk not only feed the baby, but also feed the baby's microbiome, says David Sella, associate professor of food science and director of the Fergus M. Clydesdale Center for Foods for Health and Wellness. This changed the way people think about the role of human milk in infant nutrition. Microbes that feed on breast milk play key roles in infants' growth, from jumpstarting the immune system and digestive systems, to aiding in brain development. The molecular underpinnings of these processes, however, are not well understood. More than a decade ago, Sela and his team noticed that Bifidobacterium infantis, a beneficial bacteria that colonizes the infant gut, had the ability to degrade urea, a molecule that mammals excrete as waste in urine. There's a lot of urea in breast milk since it's typically excreted out of the system, and this major colonizer has the ability to degrade it. We thought it's possible that the microbes are utilizing this waste product as a nitrogen source within the infant gut, Sela says. In a paper published in um, March 27 in the journal Gut Microbes, senior author Sela describes how B. infantis utilizes urea from human milk to recycle the nitrogen in the infant's gut microbiome. The paper lays the groundwork for applying this discovery to improve infant health around the world by identifying molecular targets to improve nitrogen metabolism efficiency. 
This might lead to nutritional interventions and diagnostic tools to address infant nutrition in the entire world, Sella says. If we have a better understanding of how the microbiome contributes to nutrition, then we have a better understanding of how to provide nourishment, not only to healthy infants, but to infants who are preterm or are more predisposed to diseases, sickness, and conditions that are deleterious to their health. After years of research, Sella and his team in the Sella lab have achieved an understanding of the process from the microbial side, which was the overarching objective of the project. Since 2021, his research has been funded by a five-year, $1.69 million grant from the National Institute of Child Health and Human Development. It's fantastic that it's being recognized in that way. To test their hypothesis, researchers in the Cella Lab, including lead author Xiaomeng Yu, a graduate research assistant, demonstrated that the B. infantis bacteria, when fed urea, were able to use it as a nitrogen source. They then tracked the urea nitrogen with a stable isotope, which is it gets incorporated into all kinds of bacterial products that the bacteria makes, and that was really insightful, Sella explains. It gives us the strongest evidence that the bacteria is utilizing urea nitrogen for its basic metabolism. The next step will be to examine the process in the human system, looking at mother's milk, infant growth and development, and microbiome function as it pertains to urea utilization, Sella says. If we want to have clinical or nutritional relevancy in humans, we have to understand how it works in babies. Sella and his team are eager to tackle the ongoing challenges. There are a lot of open questions that we generated from this study that we're excited to follow up on. And that's, that's great to hear because that can only mean more funding. So that's, yeah, that's a beautiful one. Thank you. It's also interesting because it's demonstrating that that human milk, that breast human breast milk, is is um, connected to the to the gut microbiome specifically. That it's not it's not any other kind of milk, and and so it's um, you know that that research is is very fascinating, and that they were they're discovering these connections there is what drew me to it also. Yeah, it is very interesting. As I understand it, they discovered that there was a, a nutrient in human breast milk that humans couldn't metabolize, and then they realized that it was to feed the baby's microbiome. <laughs> and uh, I know there's also interesting work going on about the microbiome and um, I believe conditions of of malnutrition, and that to help children who who've been malnourished, that it wasn't always adequate to just give them more food. That their microbiomes sometimes had become really messed up. I think it was funded by the Gates Foundation, I believe. And if I could get a link and put it in the chat, but anyway, there, there's lots of interesting studies like that. Thanks for sharing that, Victoria. Welcome, Dr. Heidi. Thank you, Joyce. And welcome, Dr. Heidi. 
Yeah, can I thank you quickly, Victoria and Katrina, for um, the outstanding dose of science and news, which we didn't find in Clubhouse. Uh, we find people talking about physics, talking about tech, talking about AI, but um, maybe I'm biased to the biological news. So thank you so much for um, shedding the light on a great news and um, you're taking us in a nice journey from biomimicry to ecosystem to environment to sustainability and here you go um, in the last 10 years um, the last uh, uh, actually research you've been sharing with us they, there are lots of contradictions if um, uh, the natural mom's milk is and breastfeeding is beneficial or all the new formulas and um, the economy of finding the formulas and um, the vitamins in them. So I love this research and I'm actually supporting it. And as you know, there are schools in science and it's always, there is no a definite answer, but I am biased actually to the natural milk and the breastfeeding and this research. And I'm happy that you take my mind in another area as well. They use the AI to, um, quantify the studies to find out uh, which way we can go and one of the quantification and finding um, quantity wise research supporting that breastfeeding is go to so thank you so much for the nice journey and the news and um, keep going you're rocking it thank you <laughs> Well, yay. And we appreciate your feedback so much. It means everything to us. We, Katarina and I had the idea to start this uh, room. We had a guest who didn't, wasn't able to make it. And we had, here we were having the time and we thought we have these interests. And, you know, we all have our, our particular areas that fascinate us. And so together we bring um, many different things to the mix and, and really appreciate the feedback. So thank you, Dr. Heidi. Yeah, thank you so much for those kind words. And um, yeah, I think the, yeah, I agree. I think the beauty is to have people with different interests from different backgrounds contributing, which makes it, yeah, way more interesting and complex and the discussions better. And yeah, I also love this research. I don't know if people know, but um, there have been, there, there was a study and I don't know why it was only done now in Germany that showed that every year just in Germany and just in cancer patients, over 50,000 people die from malnutrition and not from the cancer, not from the treatment itself. Because we don't know enough about nutrition, um, even, you know, during cancer treatments. And even less we know about infants and what is important. So I think research like this is really important because we really have in hospitals people dying uh, because we ignore nutrition. And then people um, don't even, they don't even run blood tests and have a team of nutritionists checking if people are suffering due to their condition or just you know modern lifestyle um, malnutrition of spe specific ingredients we really need and there's this one hospital now in germany having this team on 
but the insurances and the government are not paying for it. So they're just paying it, you know, out of their own budget, basically. And so I think this is really important and to make awareness about this because we could save with this modern medicine way more people. And these are the, just the people that are dying. We are not even mentioning people that don't die but have long-term health effects, negative health effects from malnutrition. So I think it's really important. And uh, yeah, thank you for, for sharing this. Okay, should we go on to um, the next research? Um, since we are in health right now, um, I think stress is nowadays a huge problem too in our societies everywhere around the world. And uh, there was a really interesting research about stress and how we can maybe reverse stress effects and how this will work. Um, so, um, yeah, this um, I pinned the article on top of the room. Um, and, um, you know, one of the biggest from modern society stress factor is actually loneliness. Um, it's worse than, than smoking 12 cigarettes a day, actually. And I think the the Surgeon General um, made, like, gave an interview or um, a talk about this very recently. So, um, and the study adds uh, to the knowledge of biological age that is distinct from a person's chronolo chronological age uh, and if it could be reversible. Um, and they, this, uh, it's a really international team that this, this research, they found markers of biological aging that uh, seem to be increasing following stressful events such as major surgery, pregnancy, serious infections, and um, then how they return to baseline levels after a period of recovery from those stressors. Um, so slowing down, let alone reversing the effects of aging, is something that people basically um, really want to achieve. Um, and um, this growing understanding um, shows how DNA, how the DNA is being used, is very uh, malleable and um, how we can basically change, remove these chemical tags that were added um, by cells due to stress and those are called epigenetic changes and um, and one big envi environmental factor around the world is malnutrition infection or stress during ch childhood or later in life and this changes basically the molecular clock in our cells and um, Another big stress factor for women around the world is having multiple pregnancies that can um, age cells beyond their years. And um, so they, they looked into this epigenetic clocks and, um, and 
they found that um, the biological age is at least somewhat malleable, the extent to which biological age undergoes reversible change throughout life and the events that trigger such changes remain unknown. Um, says Harvard Medical School um, researcher Vadim Gladyshev, uh, who co-authored the study. And um, research shows that in spite of the toll an unborn baby takes on their mother's body, a mother's cells look younger during pregnancy than her chronological age um, suggests um, this and um, during uh, 2019 the investigators did a small clinical trial and they realized that a cocktail of three common drugs may shed a few years of a person's biological age and um, this new study which uses multiple epigenetic uh, markers basically to measure how biological age changes in response to stress in animal models and human data sets also find that stress in youth spurts of aging might only be a temporary thing if it doesn't turn into chronic stress, of course. And um, a clear pattern that emerged over the course of our studies is that exposure to stress increases, of course, biological age. And when stress was relieved, biological age could be fully or partially restored. This is perhaps most clearly demonstrated by our analysis of biological age changes in response to major surgery. Um, so uh, they took blood samples from elderly trauma patients undergoing emergency surgery, showed surges in markers of biological age that returned to ba baseline a week after the operation. And this pattern reflected results from mice that had been surgically joined um, and then separated. However, patients opting for elective surgeries showed no signs of accelerated aging. Finding a signal among, among the noise of millions of cell um, signals uh, with activity is difficult to do, hence with the researchers compared multiple epigenetic clocks and datasets, interestingly, some detected no changes. Even so, the researchers think and their findings suggest that the body is capable of reversing the biological age process. Um, but it's one thing to observe fluctuations in bodily processes and another thing altogether to try to harness them therapeutically to reverse the effects of aging. So the body is um, capable of many remarkable things that modern medicine can barely replicate and we don't know yet if these fleeting changes in cellular aging have any lasting or detectable health effects and this was published in cell metabolism so i think it's very encouraging that once the stress factor is gone um, the the body kind of uh, reverses that effect so yeah this points that it's really important to kind of um yeah, regulate stress and it shows real benefits. So um, I think this is really encouraging work. I'm curious what um, what the parameters of stress are according to this research. Can you hear me okay? Because I switched to AirPods. Yeah, yeah, I okay, can hear great. you. Right. So how how would the stress be determined and what alleviating stress, how is that measured? 
Well, they in this case, they did like major acute events because then it's always easier to pinpoint it to that event. Um, so major surgery, multiple pregnancies, um, and um, they they saw that you know if like uh, acute basically stress insult um, occurs that the body if that insult is gone so a person doesn't you know stay under surgery for weeks or it doesn't have repeated surgery for weeks um, that then those those biomarkers go back to uh, they were before um, which you kind of have to have that as a starting point because you need like a group where you take blood samples before then you know right during the stress and then after for a, for a certain you know amount of time but it would be interesting to continue that research and then check you know if you have prolonged stress like let's say you have cancer treatment over a prolonged time or you know other stress factors that were for years if the body still is able to bounce back basically and and uh, that that's really interesting and that's kind of the holy grail we've been always looking for because we always know that people although they let's say grew up under very um, bad conditions and stressful conditions they'll still have a healthy life later on but a lot of people don't right and there's kind of this resilience research so i don't think they are there yet but i think it's a good start in the right direction i love good news <laughs> it's just such an optimistic it's an optimistic article so it's it's wonderful but yeah it's it's um it would be so interesting to be able to measure those things because as you're saying with resilience, some things that are stressful to some are, are um, you know, are otherwise to other people, you know, you could have the same situation and, and weather it differently, but it would also depend on so many other things, you know, like, like we're mentioning, it could be nutrition or, or job security or, um, you know, climate stressors, it could be just so many things are, are all working synergistically to determine what, you know, what stress is or how we, how we, um, how we respond. Yeah, we had a guest speaker here um, that I had here, but we didn't have Science Society Club yet. It was kind of independent still then during COVID times. Dr. Belsky from Columbia University, if I remember right, and he's in public health research. And he um, did also this biomarker blood test research and focused on epigenetic changes. But what he looked into was this biological aging or the amount of epigenetic changes if you kind of live in really bad conditions right what you say job insecurity uh, food insecurity um, childhood stress and all these things and he found these biomarkers and the goal was and we should invite him back and check up on his um, publications 
the goal was of that start that was kind of the starting point to have like these different populations and compare and he showed that people in these environments have a faster aging clock basically um and then he what he wanted to do next is what actually helps like what public health measurements like um you know from the government or institutions what actually improves that um that fast-paced aging to reverse it and i think it was really good because he wasn't although his research in the public news was a lot about aging and reverse aging but his intent of the work is for public health and to have kind of a more data insight approach and how to help people in a, on a big scale basically i was also going to say that um a fair amount of research has been done about the effect of stress on the microbiome and and it can also make one more susceptible to infections and those can have um you know probably interesting interactions with those epigenetic things that you're talking about katarina and and perhaps prolong you know say if you if you acquire an infection while you're having this period of stress, it's going to kind of prolong the situation, perhaps. Yeah, I agree. I think we have to learn way more um, about basically resilience in general and, um, and how to address. And then what I like about the research, it takes away um, the stigma also of people being exposed to these stressors later than having, you know, different health conditions. Uh, the stigma that is kind of prevalent, that is kind of their fault, you know, maybe you should have eaten vegan or done more yoga, um, which is very harsh on people that have actual diseases then that um, to pinpoint that with a blood test and with actual um, yeah factors that we can change and that will help will will help people because we right now we don't know and we just throw random things at people and they get really frustrated and anxious and depressed because they feel like it's it's their fault. They don't want to be healthy enough or happy enough. And so I think this data-driven approach is very important also to take the pressure off people uh, to in this very confusing health industry. That's just a huge money-making industry. So um, yeah, it will be. Oh, yes, I'm agreeing that um, words make such a big difference, too. And and we're so impressionable. So those comments that you were talking about can also have an, an additive effect on someone's stress level, even if, um, you know, other factors are are positive. Having having. Um, yeah, having guilt 
associated with with a health condition that maybe somebody doesn't have control over or doesn't understand yet is is not it can only add to the stress and make it worse it makes me think of um the people i talk to with uh, long COVID, how they get frustrated because people will say to them oh you should have done this you should have done that and uh you know it may have nothing to do with their lifestyle it could be it could be genetic it could be you know something that you know that has just you know nobody would have known you know so it's it's yeah it's not good to blame the victim yeah it happens a lot with cancer patients you know oh maybe you bottled up your anger maybe your karma is bad you know all these things they get constantly exposed to and people suggest things like oh, just eat more drink more carrot juice you know, like, um, I know that from a friend, you get really very frustrated over time um, because he has a type of cancer that um, you just need to control and keep small. You cannot kill it because then it would, um, and you cannot remove it because by while removing it, the cancer would release um, a huge amount of serotonin that would basically kill you immediately um so the risk is way too high so you have to keep over for your life taking drugs to keep it in check so uh yeah then you get your whole life this nonsense which is very frustrating and yeah you have to have a thick skin yeah and yeah it just it just points to how important it is that we're that we're considerate and get the whole story and maybe even don't offer advice when when it's not just kindness and support i did have a situation when i was pregnant with my second child and my the um the nurse uh, noticed that i had high blood pressure and she told me victoria you've got to get a hold of this you know this this isn't okay you've got a family to take care of you can't be walking around with high blood pressure as if it was my fault. And meanwhile, you know, I'm eating well, I'm getting my exercise, but then we realized that I was also developing preeclampsia. <laughs> so it wasn't, it wasn't like a choice or something, you know, and it, and it did, it made me feel horrible. It was, it was actually frightening. And, and I'm sure that it increased my stress level because it, I could feel it. And, and she could have said anything else, you know, oh, I notice your blood pressure is high. Let's see what we're going to do. Or, you know, maybe there are some methods that I can share to help you, um, you know, relieve stress or calm down while we're trying to figure out how to manage this. So our words matter quite a lot. And, and it's, um, we just, we need to be so compassionate. <laughs> So thank you for this great news. I, I love this. I just I love um, this take-home message of of uh, we are resilient in this article. Yeah, thank you. And um, yeah, I think we can we can move on to this next article. I think it's kind of um, positive too, um, because this article basically shares how if we fix the problems we have with our heart it can also uh, be good for our brains and um and uh 
prevent or delay the onset of like dementia and, and so on. So, um, so I thought this was really interesting because it's not too often that we have research that kind of connect the dots of different fields because nowadays a lot of people are really special specialists of a very specific area because research is also getting more and more complicated. We have more and more fancy and complicated tools and very expensive tools. It's also not always affordable to have this um, connecting dots and different fields research. Uh, so I, I think this is really wonderful and this shows how, how in, important it is to do that. So in summary, people with arterial fibrillation who were treated with catheter ablation may be at lower risk of cognitive decline and dementia than those who did not receive the treatment. So people who have a regular heartbeat called arterial fibrillation that is treated with a procedure called catheter ablation may have, um, yeah, it's just repeating the same thing. This was uh, released April 18th and uh, will be presented at the American Academy of Neurology uh, annual meeting in Boston. Uh, actually, it just happened April 22nd to 27th. And um, so they use this ablation, which um, uses radio frequencies through a tube into the heart to destroy small areas of heart tissue that may be causing this abnormal heartbeat. And previous studies have found that people with arrhythmias may have long-term thinking and memory problems due to how this condition may affect the blood flow to the brain. And um, our findings show that the treatment with this ablation is linked to a reduced risk of cognitive impairment. And the study involved 887 people uh, with an average age of 75 at the start of the study. Um, and of this group, 193 people received this ablation procedure. And participants completed a memory and thinking test at the start of the study at one year and two years. This test included questions regarding short-term memory, attention, concentration, and language and scored range from 0 to 30. Cognitive impairment was de defined as a score of 23 or less. People who received this ablation procedure had an average score of 25 compared to people who did not receive the procedure with an average score of 23. After adjusting for factors like heart disease, renal disease, sleep apnea, and arterial fibrillation risk score, those who underwent um, the procedure were 36% uh, less likely to develop cognitive impairment than those who did not receive the procedures. Our results are encouraging. However, there, may, there are any, many factors taking into consideration and more research is needed to confirm these results. I think this is really encouraging and I would assume that also um, treating other heart blood pressure related disorders early on, like preventive medicine basically, uh, will have um, similar effects, but th these are studies that are really hard to do and over a long time range, so um, it's really hard also to get, you know, enough funding for it, but um, I kind of 
think that uh, treatment of your heart and blood pressure for sure can't hurt uh, your brain uh, health um, and hopefully it also helps. So I don't know if you wanted to comment. Well, um, I have, there was a study recently that indicated that um, keeping your blood pressure um, lowered and especially I think it was the pulse pressure, which is the difference between the upper number and the lower number um, was associated with less dementia. Uh, so I'm sure that I'll say with this catheter ablation thing, um, my dad had that done, but it doesn't always work, unfortunately, uh, you know, because they do it in order to get the rhythm to be improved. Um, and of course, the study, they couldn't really randomize it, but but still, it, it does look encouraging. So, thanks. Yeah, it is. It is encouraging. I also know I have a friend um, I mean, who's an athlete and still he had this type of arrhythmia and his options were to do the ablation or cardioversion, which is an electric shock and or nothing and just try to treat it case by case and knowing having this data would really encourage i would think would really encourage somebody to move forward with with um you know more more drastic treatment such as as the ablation you know it would just really help to make to make your mind up to just well let's move forward and take care of this thing instead of trying to see how it goes As I recall it, I mean, it's not too uh, invasive because they they put it up through the, I guess, through the vein. They put a catheter through, so it's not like if they're opening up your heart or anything. Yeah, that's a really good point that um, that, that motivates people more to... Um, yeah, to, to go through these procedures and take care of their health um, because, I don't know, but I think a lot of people are kind of afraid of losing their mind, basically. So, um, yeah, I, I think that's a really great point. Yeah, I think we are um, reaching the hour, but um, I felt like we didn't um, really address so far uh, something... Um, about you know new technologies that can help uh, with the environment to um, make different type of production procedures that we need to do um, more eco-friendly and um, I don't know if you know but um, ammonia is uh, really important for agriculture and it's kind of a really uh, I don't know, it's kind of a really dirty um, procedure that um, is really the opposite of eco-friendly. And um, that's why I really like this research because if adapted in the, uh, from the industry um, and even if it's cheaper, so I think that's a big factor for fast adaptation if it makes the process cheaper, easier. Um, then um, this would be huge um, because 
you know, agriculture is done on a large scale and we will need to do it more and more intensely because of growing population around the world and and also the availability of soil and regions that will have the appropriate climate to grow um, all the nutrients we need is diminishing um, due to climate change and droughts and so on. So we will have to basically um, produce more food with less um, soil that is optimal for growing things. So yeah, these Stanford researchers have found the environmental friendly methods of producing ammonia using small droplets of water and nitrogen sourced from the air. Um, ammonia uh, serves as the foundation for the creation of chemical fertilizers used for agricultural crops. For over 100 years, the global production of ammonia in large quantities has relied on the Haber-Bosch process. This industrial breakthrough has had a major impact on agriculture, enabling the feeding of a rapidly growing human population. However, the Haber-Bosch process is extremely energy intensive, requiring high pressure levels of 80 to 300 atmospheres and temperatures ranging from 572 to 1000 Fahrenheit, 300 to 500 Celsius, to break nitrogen strong bonds. Additionally, the steam treatment of natural gas um, involved in the process contributes significantly to the release of carbon dioxide, a key contributor to climate change. All told, to satisfy the current annual worldwide demand for 150 million metric tons of ammonia, the Haber-Bosch process gobbles up more than 2% of global energy and accounts for about 1% of the carbon dioxide emitted into the atmosphere. In contrast, the innovative method debuted by Stanford researchers requires less specialized circumstances. We were shocked to see that we could generate ammonia in benign everyday temperature and pressure environments with just air and water and using something as basic as a sprayer. Um, if this process can be scaled up, it would represent an eco-friendly new way of making ammonia, which is one of the most important chemical processes that takes place in the world. Uh, the new method also uses little energy and at a low cost, thus pointing a way forward to potentially producing the valuable chemical in a sustainable manner. Uh, and this was published in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Science. A new chemistry from Blue Sky Study. The new chemistry discovered follows in the footsteps of pioneering uh, work by their lab in recent years, examining the long overlooked and surprisingly high reactivity of water micro droplets. Um, Zara and colleagues novelly uh, demonstrated that caustic hydrogen peroxide spontaneously forms microdroplets in contact with surfaces. Experiments since have borne out of um, that mechanism of electric charge jumping between the liquid and solid materials and generating molecular fragments known as reactive oxygen species. Taking those findings further, Song and Zer began a collaboration with study co-author Bashir Shanbasha, a professor of chemistry of 
King Fahd University of Petroleum and Minerals in Saudi Arabia. Shambasha uh, spe specializes in nanomaterials for energy, petrochemical and uh, environment applications and came to Stanford as a visiting scholar. The team zeroed in on a catalyst, the term for any substance that boosts the rate of chemical reaction, but is not itself degraded or changed by the reaction that they suspected could help blaze a chemical pathway towards ammonia. Um, yeah, so um, then they go into details. The researchers apply the catalyst to a graphite mesh that song incorporated into a gas-powered power sprayer. The sprayer blasted out these micro droplets in which pumped water and compressed molecular nitrogen reacted together in the presence of the catalyst uh, using a device called a mass spectrometer. Song analyzed the micro droplets characteristics and saw the signature of ammonia in the collected data. Our method does not require the application of any electric voltage or form of radiation. Um, yeah, and then they say that it's remarkable and they hope that they can scale this up. So, yeah, I thought this was a very positive note to end with. Yeah, definitely. That's, that would be amazing. Yeah, and it shows that, again, like doing research just for the sake of curiosity can lead in, as they say, blue sky research can lead to this very important progress and developments that we cannot foresee, really. So I think uh, this is double positive. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, um, you're almost more likely to come up with something really novel um, by doing it that way. Because, um, you know, if you're thinking in, along the traditional lines, probably everyone has already been thinking that way. So if you just head out in some direction out of curiosity, uh, then you, you're more likely, perhaps, to come up with something new. Yeah, I totally agree. Um, it's really the right way um, to do it. And... Um, yeah, there is no good or bad signs or useful or useless signs. There's just, um, yeah, just there, there is a difference between very badly done signs and, you know, like sound signs based on, um, you know, really just going with the data and not trying to impose your... Um, yeah, we kind of discussed it a tiny bit before in the room we had before on these um, inspiration or, or how the what word did I say? I forgot. Um, that is not like knowledge based, but kind of be oh, belief based. So that we don't do science belief based, but um, you know, real knowledge, real database. I think that's a difference we can make. But if science a specific type of science is useful or not, I think that categorization we can possibly do because 
we we won't know like um we can't foresee the future <laughs> and the world is way too complex and as i understand it a lot of the grants that people get um, although they're for a specific thing that's very well outlined that they often use at least some of it to explore these other things and it's 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 um kind of allowed i guess basically they understand that's going to happen and that's okay yeah yeah exactly there's no other way of getting your research funded i agree yeah so we've been going on for a little bit over an hour i think we had really interesting Research, of course, there's way more. I have a way longer list. Let's do it again next week. And then the next room we have is on May 5th at 12 p.m. EST. And it's with Dr. Schumacher. Um, he, um, they published in Nature um, work about the dream complex and how it's functioning as a regulator of DNA repair. So it kind of goes back to what we talked about, resilience, um, how the cells and the body can basically bounce back from stress insults um, and um, how we have and how these repair mechanisms work. It's really new research that came out um, that will add on to that knowledge about how we can bounce back and reverse our biological clock. So yeah, if um, you're interested, come and join us. I know it's early for the West Coast, but he's a researcher from uh, Europe. So for them, it's already um, late. So <laughs> what, what time is it on? On May 5th? Uh, 12 p.m. EST. So for you, it's um, 9 oh, a.m. Right. Oh, okay, mm -hmm. that's not too bad. Okay. <laughs> yeah, sometimes we have 9 a.m. rooms if they want to. <laughs> yeah, so that's way too early for you. But I think well, sometimes, I'm, sometimes I'm up, but <laughs> I have to keep an eye out for them. Okay, great. Yeah, that sounds great. I'll be in class, but. Um... That will be, it sounds really fun. <laughs> yeah, we have, we have more rooms planned until like beginning of June. As I said, if you have suggestions of topics, articles, feel free to sh reach out to us and direct message us here on Twitter. And we'll try to invite the, the researchers. Um, yeah, we have next week, um, also interesting rooms um, with, about climate and how um, climate changes zooplankton availability, which uh, then declines the food quality in fish and um, how that affects the ecosystem. Then we have an archaeology room about um, uh, analysis insights into ancient Egyptian embalming and not just specifically just about that. He will also talk about um, his, um, you know, the larger uh, archaeology research he does. He basically analyzes chemicals from the ancient world and uh, puts it into context of how people used to do things and live. And then we'll have 
Dr. Hatton from MIT and he will uh, talk about um, how asymmetric chloride mediated electrochemical processes for CO2 removal from um, ocean water will hopefully help us to um, recognize um, the ocean as a global scale reservoir for atmospheric CO2 and how we can kind of harvest that. So yeah, that's the outlook for next week. And uh, yeah, thank you everyone for coming. And uh, I hope I hear you all again soon. Yeah, I feel like some in our in our own small way that we're doing our part to make the world a better place when when you can share an article that brings hope. That's huge. You know, like there's there's a path, there's a path toward making the world a better place and and um, you know, maybe this is a little step toward it here. So thank you so much friends for coming spending this time with us and I hope that you'll share this time with us again soon. Thank you. Love you all. And hi, Riz. Thank you for coming. Riz Grinter um, is here and will be speaking. So um, thank you for coming and checking out the Science Newsroom. So, okay. Have a good night, everyone. Good morning, um, wherever you are. And uh, yeah, I hope we'll hear you all back soon. Close the yeah. room in three, two, one. Bye. Bye, everyone.